What's up, my friends? Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to do a quick amendment to something that was said during the episode. Callum, the, the guest, was talking about input versus output randomness, and this is something we talked about a good bit throughout the episode, and the terms were actually reversed. So every time he says input randomness, what he meant to say was output randomness, and every time he said output randomness, what he meant to say was input. And so as you go throughout the episode, as you listen, just uh, remember every time he says one of those terms, reverse it, he got, got a little bit mixed up in the definition, and it's something I've got, I didn't even notice it when we were talking, and so it's on me too uh, for not correcting him. But anyway, I just wanted to make sure that you knew the terms uh, throughout the episode were, were reversed that way when, you know, if you start talking talking about these concepts in a different context that you would know the right terms to use. Anyway, thanks for listening, and we'll get into it. Today's episode is sponsored by Movie Empire from Stimulus Games. If you love movies and worker placement games, then this is a game for you. Fight for rare resources like scripts, stars, and production assets. Release your movies at the right time in the right market, and try to hit the most recent trends, all while keeping your fellow players at bay. A special mechanism of Movie Empire is to please your boss, Mr. Grumpy. The more he likes you, the more opportunities you have. But as pleasing him is no easy task, you can also betray other players. Let the clubbing and backstabbing commence. Other highlights of the game include a modular game board, multiple game variants, and the gorgeous illustrations from board game artist Alan Orr. Movie Empire is a game for two to four players and is premiering on Kickstarter February 5th. Subscribe to the newsletter at www.stimulus-games.com to receive the launch notification and exclusive updates. And if you happen to be at Spiel and Essen, we'd love to meet you at the Stimulus Games booth, located in Hall 4, booth L100, to play some rounds of Movie Empire. Hope to see you there. And as always, hosting for the Board Game Design Lab is provided by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about randomness, we're talking about player agency, we're talking about how those two things are juxtaposed, if I could use a literary word in my English teacher uh, nature, and how those things fit together in game design. We're talking to Callum Taylor from Twisted Bit Games. Callum, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? It's good, man. Callum, right? I pronounced your name right? Yeah, you got it right. Got okay, it in cool. one. Awesome. Well, it's good I'm to very hear. used to people getting it wrong at this point. <laughs> what do they use? Some say Callum? Like Callum? Callum. Callum. For people from the States, Callum is the most po- most common. Gotcha. I can see that. Go, ah, no. Ah. <laughs> when I was actually, I was in Gen Con this year, and someone got it wrong about seven times in the space of five minutes. <laughs> and each time I corrected him until... Very unprofessionally at the end, I just went, right, snort. no, I need to stop you. Caleb is not my name. <laughs> yeah, I understand. It's funny, you get in different cultures, and it's just different. Like here in Honduras, uh, no one ever spells my name correctly because my last name has two T's, which in Spanish, mm-hmm. there, it makes no sense to have two T's. Like, it would have to be Barrett, ta-ta. Like, you'd have to pronounce that extra letter, and so they always misspell my name. And so I just mark my students wrong. Like, if they misspell my name like a paper, I just take points off, and it kind of, yeah. you know, incentivizes them to spell it correctly. But it's funny the how... The hassle I had. Yeah. Uh, my last name is Taylor. Uh-huh. And in Korea, in, in English, Taylor, two syllables, yeah. Taylor. Yeah. In Korean, it's four. <laughs> it's Taylor. It's just, oh, it's that's too cool. much. That's funny. Well, you know, I'm from Alabama, and so we have a tendency to stretch things out as well. And so we'll make a two-syllable word, a four-syllable word in a heartbeat just because we, we talk so slow and uh, we stretch those <laughs> things out. But that's, that's interesting. But hey, we're already getting into your bio. Before we get into the episode, who are you? Tell me about Twisted Bit Games, how you got into game design, all that good stuff. 
So uh, my name's Callum. Uh, I'm quite new to the whole. Well, I'm making. I've designed my first real game. Uh, I got into game design after I moved to South Korea. To I started went there to teach English. Sounds like that's what you do in Honduras as well. Yes, or... it is. high school English. So uh, I was teaching there, um, mainly because I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. And once I was there, I got into board games in a way I hadn't before. Like growing up, I played like your standards, like your Risk, your Monopoly, that kind of stuff. And it was fine. But then in Korea, I started playing things that had more depth, things that are a bit more modern, a bit more complexity. I got a bit hooked. But then there was always sometimes I'd play a game and i think, oh, I wish I could do this. Oh, I don't really like that. And I thought, well, why not I just make one that I won't say that about? I'll make a game that when I play it, I don't think, oh, I wish I could do this because I can. Yeah, very cool. Now, yeah. where do you live now? Uh, I just moved back to the UK. I'm living in Durham, which is in the north of England. Yeah, very cool. And so... you sound like you're from uh, that country originally. I'm actually Scottish. What? So... I'm sorry if I just super offended you. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you meant the United Kingdom, right? That's yes, what you meant. obviously it's okay. what I meant. <laughs> and we are a part of the United Kingdom. Some of us more willingly than others, yeah, but, absolutely. you know, still a part. Now, are you guys also going to be part of the European Union? Or how does that work oh, out? Oh, that is a that is a wormhole for <laughs> a, a different mess, genre <laughs> of podcast, I think. <laughs> no, no, we don't have to get into that right now. Let's get into randomness and player agency. First of all, let's get a good working couple of definitions here, because I feel like we need to define randomness as far as what, the way you believe it is, and then also what is player agency. So give me definitions, just in your mind, your opinion, what those two things are. So randomness for me is uh, something that affects a game and a player has no control over. Ah, okay. Um, they can maybe react to something differently, but they can't control this element that happens. And for me, randomness is divided into two categories. That would be input randomness and output randomness. So input randomness would be when you're trying to do something, but the thing you do is random. So say you're... Uh, I can't think of a game off the top of my head, but say you're given uh, an action you must do and the action is completely random. That's like input randomness. Uh, output randomness is more like the game randomly does something and then gives you a situation to react to so that could be something a game like i've forgotten every game that exists at this moment it happens the way i look at it is when do you roll the dice do you roll the dice before the decision or after the decision and that's kind of how i exactly. look at it yeah so yeah, that's a, that's a much better way let's <laughs> cut all my nonsense and just say that so if i use something like uh warhammer everyone's played a game like a war a game like warhammer where you're like i'm gonna fight this person okay, now roll your dice, mm -hmm. this is your result. Whereas another game, someone might say, oh, flip over this event, <gasps> this thing has happened, now react to it. Now we have to react, yeah, that's a great way to put it. And then as far as player agency, what do you think, what is that? Player agency for me is how, play, is how much players can do themselves, how much they have control over. So games that have no randomness, uh, players have 100% control. So a game like chess is a game which has zero randomness and 100% player agency because everything that happens in the game is a decision of the players. Something on the complete opposite end would be uh, the Game of Life game, <laughs> um, which is zero player agency. It's 100% randomness. It's basically rolling dice and following instructions for however long it takes. So those are kind of the opposite ends of the spectrum. So player agency with something like input randomness would be you're making the decision for what will be randomized. And player agency for output randomness is how you react to the situation that you're given. Yeah, gotcha. And now it seems like pretty much every game 
you know, other than maybe chess and some of these that are just like 100%, right? Pretty much every game has some level of these two things, right? It might be 80-20, it might be 90-10, it might be 50-50. And, and so I feel like this is something important for people to really, really understand and think through when they're designing games. And so let's talk about why, why is it important to really think about the levels of randomness and player agency in your game? For me, I think randomness is something you can never get rid of in a game because if you have a lack of randomness, it leads to something which I find extremely frustrating, which I would call a solved game. Mm, I don't like it when a game is solved and there is a correct answer. An example would be, no, that's not an example because it's random, but get something like chess. Again, I hate to keep coming back to that basic analogy, but if you take a chess grandmaster and show them situations, you can have tests where someone will show you a thing and there is a correct move. This is what you should do. So when you don't have any randomness, it gets to the stage where there's almost like, I don't want to say a skill ceiling on the game, but there's like a situation ceiling. There's a limited number of things that can happen. As you increase the threshold of randomness, you increase the chances that something surprising can happen, which some people dislike because some people take competitiveness really seriously. They want to focus. But for other people, when you have those surprises, that's what's fun. And that's what I think is really important in game design is that you have that level of fun, that level of surprise that makes people feel like they're playing a game and not taking a test. Yeah, for sure. You you like to have those what if moments. Okay, what if I roll this die? And it hits a, a natural twenty. Like, okay, what could yeah, happen? Exactly. Yeah, that that's your things for like D and D. A natural twenty and yeah. a nat one are the things people talk about. No one ever tells you, oh man, I was playing this sick D and D campaign with my wizard, and I rolled a fourteen. <laughs> that's <Ugh>. right. <laughs> everyone's all, everyone's D and D stories are things like, oh, I rolled three ones in a row, and my character tripped and I don't know, stuck right. his head in a keyhole or something. Right, and killed everybody else. Absolutely, it creates yeah, those exactly. fun story moments. Yeah. Also, and then you... even for me personally, when I was playing games like Warhammer, I would play armies with swarms of terrible, terrible, terrible troops. So I could just take a big fistful of dice, roll them all. And I needed fives and sixes, but every five and six felt like it was worth so much more. Yeah, absolutely. You also want to avoid your game feeling formulaic, like you're saying. Like, basically, just plug in on turn one, I do this. On turn two, I do this. On turn three, I do this. And by turn seven, I win. Like, you don't want that. You don't want, don't want it to be a solved game. And this is something I've seen with a lot of prototypes is that the 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 first round, first two rounds, first you know how many you know turns, mm-hmm. however you kind of break up your your actions, they, everybody does the same thing, and, and that's happened yeah. in my own games where it's like the first few turns they feel scripted. It's like okay, I'm I'm doing the same thing everybody else is, and so why don't I just start on turn four? And so if everybody exactly. is is going to that one place and getting that one resource, well, just start the game and everybody already has that resource. Just start the game ahead, and so that's one thing I found to kind of help out with this situation. Settlers of Catan has that issue for me, of that everyone's doing the same thing at the beginning. Everyone at the beginning is trying to get like a couple of roads and maybe get their first extra city. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes purely a thing where you're waiting for the right roll at that point, or you're trying to sneakily trick someone into trading with you. Mm-hmm. And the trading part is what makes it bearable for me. Like, I don't want to poop on Catan. That was my gateway game, so I do still have a soft spot in my heart for it. But it does devolve to that thing where, perfect for the topic you're waiting say you want to build something and you need that brick and you don't roll it and you don't roll the things you have no agency until you make the roll you need Mm. so that's when i think randomness has accelerated beyond what player agency allows someone to do yeah that's a good point now as far as let's let's talk about gateway games you know when you're making a a a light game a gateway game maybe a, a family game for younger people younger kids is it better to have that if you're talking about the scale 
you know, and if you have like percentage and percentage as far as randomness and player agency, is it better to have a little more randomness than player agency in those games just because people oh, aren't used I to having so. extra actions and choices? I would say so. I would say in games, I think games should always know what their clear objective is. So in a family game or a party game, I think you can dial the randomness right up. Like, I think games like this um, are valuable for teaching because you can have a, a random thing that changes the game entirely. Something silly, something stupid. And 90% of the time, if that happens, people will react positively. But then even if it's a family game that's meant to be played with young kids, I think it's also a valuable lesson to kids that things can go wrong if they're playing a game and they think they're doing really well and then this random thing comes along that means their younger brother or sister suddenly wins the game. <laughs> there is a lesson in that for them, but also it's a fun experience for everyone because they go, oh, I never thought that would happen. But then at the opposite end, I think games that are not family games, not casual games, I think that can be really frustrating. Like if you've been playing a game and you've been carefully building your engine and then someone goes, oh, random thing. I get everything you have. And you have everything I have. <laughs> yep. That sort of thing goes down like a lead balloon in those kind of situations. Yeah, for sure. Something I talked to Kurt Covert a few weeks ago about take that games and how there are a lot of games that have take that elements that aren't take that games. And I feel like this is one of those situations where introducing the randomness of, hey, now all your stuff's my stuff and we traded, or hey, now you lose and I win. Like, if you're playing a, a pretty long game or a more complex game, a strategic game, that doesn't go well. Like, people want a lot more player agency and they don't want to deal with the random nature of those kinds of mechanisms. So I have an example of this uh, from my own game. Uh, that I don't know if I want to jump into it too quickly. No, go ahead. Just talk about it. I think just kind of exemplifies this. I had something in my game that could really quickly become a take that mechanic. Um, basically, in the game, uh, as the game progresses, certain parts of the map and the board are destroyed and the resources that were there can't be accessed anymore. And there are cards that allow players to accelerate this destruction, to destroy other areas of the board. But what I made sure was, whenever you use these abilities, you use them at the start of a turn before anyone has committed to doing anything yet. Hmm. Because for me, it's strange. <laughs> I have events that will destroy parts of the board in the middle of a turn, forcing you to react. But I don't like the idea of, in my game, of having a player go, okay, I'm going to place someone here. And then another player going, nah, no, you're not. I've completely destroyed it. Like, they can do it at the start of the turn and say, oh, you can't go there anymore. Mm. That's fine because you're not. It's not that sudden. Right. Absolutely. In it's, your face. it's really annoying in the you know a lot of games and a lot of gamers feel this way. Some are, some enjoy it. And some are cool with it. But I found a lot of people that once they've kind of developed, okay, this is my strategy. This is what I want to do. Is when people throw wrenches into that and create these situations where well now I can't do the thing I really wanted to do. That's not fun. Like you want to you want to yeah. feel clever. You want to feel smart. And, and so if if you feel clever and all of a sudden no you can't do any of the things you wanted to. It's like oh well this isn't is enjoyable. It? Is it, I, I think it's better when it's a huge part of the game. So I might be I might be misremembering, but I think family business, like the mafia game with the cards, I think that's a good example of take that because uh, if I'm remembering correctly, you can form like a chain of people blocking stuff. Like someone can block something, and the next person go, well, I unblock it, and someone else can go, I block it again, and that's be good because it's such a, you, you're expecting it. So that's just an acknowledged part that there's going to be this back and forth of, oh, I've screwed what you're doing, and then you've screwed what I'm doing. But then if we all go together, we can all just make this mess. That's enjoyable. But in other games where it's like a, a minor mechanic and kind of on the side, it can feel a bit grating. It can feel a bit out of place. Yeah, definitely. And it's the difference between a take that game versus a game with take that elements. 
Because if yes. we sit down to play a game with tons of randomness, and we know that at any time a card could turn and the whole game just goes crazy. Okay, we, we knew going in, and we, we had this basically, you know, this social contract that I was going to try to screw you over, and you're going to try to screw me over, and the game's going to try to screw us both over. Okay, cool. But if you go into a game thinking this is going to be a, a strategic, you know, not-so-random, lots-of-agency type of game, and then all of a sudden this random card shows up, and you win just because you drew it and I didn't, okay, that, that mm. tends to be a problem with, with a lot of people. And I feel like sometimes as designers, we throw that stuff in there just because we're trying to make the game a little more random. We're trying to, you know, keep it from yeah. being formulaic or being from being solved, and that's just a cheap, like, easy way to do it and i feel like there are mm-hmm. better ways to do it so let's actually let's talk about some of those what are some of the better ways to add randomness to a game but without you know making it feel like oh this is just crazy i think um so if i go back to the terms you had at the start output randomness which bizarrely enough includes the setup of the game is the most reliably popular form of randomness so you could pick any number of different games, and I think they have a degree of output randomness. Whether that's a deck of cards that get deck of cards that get shuffled at the start of the game, you're going to have different sets of cards that come up each time you play, and no one's going to really bat their eyebrows at that. No one's going to go, "I don't like you to shuffle cards. I like them to be in the same order every time." Uh, things like some things like if a uh, blood rage, the resources are in different positions every time you play. Minor things like that are very safe. No one's going to really reject those. I think it's when you go into input randomness or extreme output randomness, that's where people start to get a bit more a bit more salty about it sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Another game is Scythe. And, it, you know, you get the random setup mm. of the player boards at the beginning. And so, you know, you can't solve the game because you, you, you don't know what boards you're going to get and what kind of combination. I think it's another really cool way to do it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Another one, like Terraforming Mars. Mm-hmm. That's another one where you have the cards are always different. And also you have these different people you can choose, these different companies you can choose from. And I think that's the thing. I think when you combine the choice at the same time as the randomness. So card drafting, I think, is a really good example of the perfect fusion between randomness and player agency. Mm -hmm. So I've been given six random cards. I'm choosing which one I keep. And then I give one to you. And then it's almost like it's not randomness, but you're almost like you're making a decision for another player. So in the same way that if a player draws a card, um, it's random. They have no choice over what card they've drawn. When you hand, if you, when you're card drafting, you take a card and pass the rest to someone else. Again, they don't have agency over what you picked. So in that sense, it's almost, it's not randomness, but it's similar to it. And then they take these cards and then they get to make their decision, their agency based on the situation you've given them. Yeah, I think that's a great way to do it. And another, going back to side, is you get those objective cards at the beginning of the game. And I love how you, you get to keep them both until you mm-hmm. fulfill one. Right? I hate it when yes. games make you pick one or the other and then discard it before the game even begins. It's like, well, I don't exactly. even know how this game's going to play out. And so I love that you get to keep both. And then, so like, let's say halfway through the game, it's like, oh, this is not working. Let me try this other strategy to get this other objective, and I can still get points that way. I think that's great. I, have a, I do have a confession. I have never played Scythe. You are missing out, I've my friend. never... I've never managed to. At my The game group we had in Korea was where I got most of my gaming done, and there was one day where the one person who owned Scythe was going to bring it, and I would, I was like, I'm here, I'm coming, I'm ready to play, <laughs> and then I was sick. Oh, man. And I saw all the pictures of them playing, and then they never brought Scythe again for the rest of the year wow. that I was playing with that group. 
Scythe never made it to the table yeah, again. You got to find some friends there in the UK, man, because it is it is worth playing at least one time to check it out how it works. Even if you don't like it, you know it's not for everybody, but it's worth playing. Have to find a set in the game as well. That's the first problem. <laughs> yeah, that would be the uh, conundrum number one. Uh, another game that I think handles this stuff really well is, is Pillars of the Earth, which is uh, is a worker placement game, but it has mm-hmm. random events. But what's cool is it, you you know the event before it happens right and so you flip over the card and at the beginning of the round and you know this event is going to trigger at the end and now some of the events are are good some of them are bad but it's going to affect everybody and you can plan kind of you know using your turn using your actions okay i want to make sure i do some things because i don't want this bad thing to happen but what's Mm -hmm. really cool about that as well is if you don't like the negative random events we'll just take them out of that deck like you don't have to play with them. Just play with only the positive events that don't hurt anybody, and then you know you don't have this like you don't feel like the game's taking stuff away from you. And so mm-hmm. I think that's another way to do it is have the things that are modular. And so if certain playgroups don't like them, well, just take them out and make that part of the rules. Like, hey, if you don't like these cards, remove them. See, that actually tore a bit because I have the event cards, but there's some big differences. For example, you couldn't take the negative cards away from my game because then you'd have almost none left. <laughs> because <laughs> the event deck for me is the thing that kind of the game is like stri- kind of built as this race against time before the island you're living on is completely destroyed so the events are the driving force behind that destruction but um not to spend too long on this but in each turn it's like again it has this worker placement side to it but you start with six workers and the event triggers after everyone's placed two so you still have more than half of your actions left to react to something negative that's happened. But at the same time, I didn't want people to feel too comfortable, like to see something at the start of a turn and go, oh, that's fine. Because I wanted to have that sense of urgency and panic that's a part of the theme of, oh, everything's falling apart. We have to complete these objectives to save ourselves as fast as we can. Yeah, very good. Now tell me, um, what's, the, what's the theme of your game? So the theme of the game, it's that... Uh, also, what's the name of it? Your... Sorry, I don't think... <laughs> oh, the name... have I not mentioned? Uh, the name of the game is Motora. And so thematically, you're all controlling your tribes on this island. Um, but the problem is, the gods of the island are off their heads and they are destroying the place. So before long, it's going to be somewhere that it's impossible to survive for anyone. All the tribes have gone to their high priestesses and gone, what can we do? Gods, angry, island, exploding. And... The answer they were given is they need to gather these sacred idols that are scattered across the island. But the kind of catch is there's only enough idols for one tribe to survive. Mm. So it's kind of to to what was on the sell sheet when I was showing this game to people was it's a worker placement resource management game with dice combat and capture the flag. Ah, so cool. a bit of everything. Yeah. So people are trying to get like people are trying to gather these resources, not resources, sorry, these idols. And as soon as someone's got enough to save their tribe, they win the game. But as the game's going on, you have to keep your people alive. So you have to feed them, you have to get them enough water, keep them sheltered. And so it's like this constant balance of do I extend myself to gather these idols or do I focus on eating and drinking and staying alive? Yeah, gotcha. And you you know finding that happy medium enough to win right and so what are some of the ways that you kind of balanced out randomness and player agency in your own game so a big thing for me was every time something random happens you get a choice so for example the game is a super random setup it has uh, four boards that can be arranged in different ways to make the island in the middle and then you fill that board with 41 tiles to make the kind of like distribution of the resources and so all these tiles have different resource values, but there's some that do special things. There's a volcano that kind of blocks how you place and how you move. And sometimes that volcano will be in a corner doing nothing. Sometimes it will block off a whole section of the island. 
But with that section, so that random setup, everyone sees it. Everyone goes, okay, this is the island I'm dealing with. Now I'm going to choose where my village is going to be. I'm going to choose what resources I start with based on that. As I mentioned, the events come up in a turn. You've done some actions at the start, and this some sort of the events can sometimes feel a bit ooh, a bit panicky, but that's what I wanted. I wanted this sense of, oh, nuts, I've just my plan has been a bit scuppered, so I have to quickly turn around. But what I wanted to make sure was even when it gets super negative, there's still a choice. So there's some events in my game which are harsh, which are you they will just completely mess with everyone. But then there's a choice in how you fail. So, for example, there's an event in my game that doubles the amount of water you need that turn, which, if it happens at, at certain points of the game, is devastating for everyone. But then you have a choice. So you could say, okay, I'm going to lose some people this turn. Do I spend it this turn I have gathering all my other resources to stockpile them? If I know I'm going to fail at water anyway, I can focus on everything else. Do I spend this time messing with other people while other people frantically scramble for water? Do I go for some objectives? Or do I do that myself and try everything I can to save my people? That kind of thing. So they still have this choice of how you want to react. And there's always multiple options, that none of which are objectively correct. Yeah, very like, cool. I've had people who have uh, won games by building up their tribe at the start and having this huge swarm of people that can do everything or someone who has lost more than half their people at the start of the game but one thing i'll just as an aside so in my game when you're losing your workers the workers you have left get stronger and more efficient so you can kind of choose between having a small kind of maybe vulnerable but more powerful force and a bigger more widespread but weaker hmm. so there's always that choice. So I always wanted to make sure, even when randomness inflicts a consequence on someone, so they've lost some of their workers, there's still like a benefit. There's still choices they can make. So for example, when your workers die in my game, you place their bodies, well, the same meeples, but the bodies on, you have two shrines you can choose from. Uh, one of these shrines will give a buff to your other workers when they're fighting. And one of the shrines will give them a buff to gathering resources. So even though randomness has inflicted this loss on you, you still have the agency, the choice to go, okay, well, here's what I'm going to do with this random consequence and how I'm going to move forward from there. Yeah, that's very cool. And I love how, so the game, you know, the board, everything gets set up, and then you get that choice of, okay, now where do I want to put my village? Where do I want to kind of take the yeah. strategy in what direction? And it kind of reminds me of games like Smash Up and Guardians where, mm -hmm. you know, you have the big uh, tableau of, of different factions that are available and it's like, okay, I'm going to take this one. And then your opponents take whichever ones. You're like, oh, okay, so you took the zombies, so I'm going to take this one. And so it's a little bit, you know, kind of random because you're not sure what your opponents are going to take. But exactly. then you can, you know, do some other things to kind of counteract, you know, and you get that choice. It's not just saying, oh, here's your cards, throw them together. It's like, no, no, you get a, a choice in the, the cards that you're going to play and they're going to come up randomly, you know, but at the same time, you feel like you had some agency in uh, the direction of your strategy. And what I like about Smash Up is it doesn't have that problem of being solved. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not just part of the super elite Smash Up community <laughs> that I don't know. Ah, you idiot. Obviously, the baby doll and werewolf deck is the OP combination. <laughs> right. But as far as I'm aware, there's no objective. Oh, this deck is the best. Every deck has synergies that can work together. So I think that's an example of it working well, that there's not, it's not a solved game. 
Yeah, for sure. And one thing that really helps it at this point, there's like a hundred and something different factions. And so there's so many different combinations <laughs> that it's it's hard have to you, like have you seen the size of the box for yeah, everything? No, it's, it's insane. A, it's amazing. It's bigger than it's almost as big or bigger than Gloomhaven, the smash up, just everything box. <laughs> All right, talk about two games on the total opposite end of the spectrum with the same size box. And it's it's kind of hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Well, cool. All right, let's talk a little bit more. What are some other ways, maybe some other games, you've seen that really manage to to balance uh, randomness and player agency? And when I say balance, I don't necessarily mean 50-50. I don't think that's what balance means. I think just you know balancing in that it feels right, that the game feels like the randomness versus the player agency is the right level. So I'm going to pick two games by the same designer that I think I think one of them handles the randomness better than the other. Um... So there are two two games. One I mentioned other Blood Rage, mm-hmm. and the other is the more recent one, uh, Rising Sun. Okay. So they're both Simon games, both Eric Lang games, and I think that's a good example. I think Blood Rage gets the randomness right. Mm. I think um, the card drafting, everything like that. I've never, whenever I've played Blood Rage, I've sometimes felt frustrated by the drafting situation when people make their decisions, but I've never been frustrated by the randomness of the game. Mm. So, for example uh have you played blood rage before yes Just I have. To double check. Mm-hmm. so so as the board's getting destroyed there's reason like say say you really need rage this game but the first two provinces lined up for destruction are two rage provinces that sucks but you know that at the start of the game so you can go in and say oh okay these things are going to go so i'm going to try and get this while i can or i'm going to do it in other ways so I'm not frustrated by the randomness in the game. If I'm frustrated, it's because I've got a really good card in my hand and I pass it around thinking, come back to me, mm-hmm. come all the way around, and then it doesn't. Yeah. Rising Sun, I, I absolutely loathe the action system. Mm. The fact that the actions you take are random. And I could go on to a big rant unrelated to randomness about how the alliance system really annoys me as well. Yeah. But in that game... I think the fact, it's what I talked about earlier. So it gives you this choice of these actions. And if you don't want any of them, it can kind of be a bit of a miss. Have you played played Rising Sun? I have. I played them like back to back, strangely enough. Oh, okay. So So for me, I would say the harvest action and the betray action, if you're in an alliance you want to keep, if you get a hand of harvest, harvest, betray, it stinks. Mm -hmm. You can't do anything you want. And then you're kind of beholden on other people to randomly get an action and then say they want to play it. So I think to compare the two, Blood Rage gives you all this time to see the randomness that has happened. It's all set up. It's all output randomness. It's done at the start. And then you know and you can plan. Whereas Rising Sun gives you this random situation that can just be rubbish. Um, And I'm not saying I don't like games that give you these random situations you have to react to straight away. I just think there should always be a choice that you go... Oh, I'm I'm okay with that. Yeah, for sure. I think yeah, both those games are incredible feats of design. Like, I don't think anyone could step back and go, "These are terribly designed games," because they're not. Like, they oh, are no, not amazing. At all, not at all. I, but yeah, I own them. I own them both, and I've played them both a lot. So, <laughs> absolutely. But there are different things going on when it comes to randomness and player agency. And I think that's another thing. When you sit down to go sit down to design a game, I think you really need to determine who is this game for. Which which demographic is this for? A person that doesn't want a lot of options that are you know family games or light games, filler games, whatever that they don't want a ton of player agency because they just want to turn their brain off and play you know have some fun and roll some dice, draw some cards. 
crazy things happen? Or are you designing games for people that are like, okay, I want to control the whole thing. I want to feel like I am the reason I won, not because of the die, not mm-hmm. because of the card, but because I beat you. Okay. And that's kind of your spectrum. And so, and you know, finding your place in maybe somewhere in the middle, maybe one side or the other, but really determining going in, who's this game for? Cause I feel like a lot of times we design games and we just kind of make a game and it's like, well, who's it for? Me, <laughs> you know, it's, like I, it's, it's for me, and it's just fine. That's great, but uh, you know, if you want it to go further than that and become a published game, become a product, I feel like you need to think a little bit more about these concepts. I totally agree with you that people should know what it's for. I did the completely wrong thing. I sat and I thought, who do I want this game to be for? And then I thought, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I tried. Obviously, I know I haven't hit a target that will please everyone. But what I found interesting when I've played it with different people, I've played it with everyone from people at Gen Con who were like, (sighs) people who come off from their tournaments they've just been playing and like, ah, yes, I've finished analyzing my opponents and I have a spare two hours. So let's play your game, sir. (laughs) That's a literal quote. (laughs) I played it with Korean 12-year-olds at my school in Korea to see if they would have fun. And what I found was I managed to get to a place where definitely people who are on the analytical side, the strategic side, do find frustration in my game. Mm -hmm. But what I found quite fun is I had the desired effect of instead of like, they almost saw the game as another another opponent. Mm. So they have their however many other players sitting around them, but then they're also like, and I have to plan and have all these contingencies for all the things could go wrong. So I was quite happy with that, but at the same time, horrifically relieved because I thought I'd cast my net far too wide. Yeah, that's that's a big problem for a lot of designers because a game for everybody is often a game for nobody. You know, if you're trying yeah. to appeal to everyone, you're probably not appealing to very many people at all. And so it's it's better to it's better to be hot or cold as opposed to trying to be in the middle, right? Yeah. It's better for people to say I hate this game and also for others to say I love this game versus people to go. Eh, it's okay. You know, you want that hot or cold thing because that's what people remember. And with, you know, with hundreds of games coming out every month, it's it's oh. important to find a way to stand out. And, and making yeah. For, a... Preparing a Kickstarter and then just watching the new releases every day pile up. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Oh. Yeah, right now it's crazy. Right now it's crazy. And it's only going to get crazier as we go throughout the rest of this month. And I know you got one coming up. I've got one here at the end of the month. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, we're, we're going to see how it, plans out, how it uh, pans out. But um, but it's every month now. It's not even like, oh, it's only because it's October. Like, no, it's all the time other than maybe Christmas. It's, and so, It's interesting that it's so frequent. And I think it's one of these things. I think it's going to go through a kind of natural increase and then a decrease. Uh, To compare it to video games, Mm -hmm. if you play games on Steam, you might have noticed last year, 2016, 2015, there was just this glut of garbage being vomited onto the game marketplace there every single day. Thousands of games that were just garbage. But then there was kind of this correction that people stopped throwing money at stupid things Mm -hmm. and i think in the board games industry it's interesting because at the same time it's older than a lot of other entertainment industries but it's new to this this size Mm -hmm. like even just looking at if you look at the attendance numbers of conventions through the years like you pick something like gen con that 20 years ago was a lot smaller than the tens of thousands i'm going to germany at the end of the month I thought I thought Spiel was the same size as Gen Con, and then I saw the the uh, attendance projection for a hundred and fourteen thousand, and I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> I've totally underestimated this. Um, but I think that we're going through that stage now where 
people are thinking, oh, there's so many good games being made, so everyone can be a good game designer, yeah. and people are really going for it. And it's interesting seeing, there was an example, I think it was last year, and I don't want to dump on anyone specifically, but if you look at like an old game, the old game Trivial Pursuit, mm-hmm. um, the guy who designed Trivial Pursuit came to Kickstarter with a game, I don't know if you saw this, but it was either this year or last year, and oh, it was such an eye-opener for how things have changed. He came to this Kickstarter, and oh, it got a terrible response from everyone, because there were just so many examples of this dated thinking. So something that he'd made, and Trivial Pursuit is like a game that everyone goes, oh, that's that game that I played when I was a kid with my parents, and I said I was really smart. But to see someone like that who had technically been so successful to get torn apart so much was a real eye-opener at how much things have changed. Uh, how at the same time, there's so many more people trying to do things themselves, but at the same time, I think standards are getting higher and higher. I'd be really interested to see the number of failed Kickstarter projects this year and last year compared to five years ago. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think we're to a point now where, you're, you're, like, like you're saying, there's so many projects coming to Kickstarter that you can no longer just show up with a great game and expect it to fund. Maybe, maybe if you have crazy, amazing miniatures and like this really uh, expensive uh, marketing campaign you've kind of put stuff into. But for the most part, it's people that are showing up with a crowd already built. They've already had the fan base kind of built in, whether it's through going to conventions and and kind of building up an email list or, uh, you know, building up different uh, communities online and different things like that. Those are the people that are doing pretty well on Kickstarter where there's a lot of really great projects that probably would have funded five years ago, but because because there's so many out there right now, nobody knows about them. And so I think that's another issue, yeah. too, is just like be- people being aware. Like you're saying, like there's so many games that, that we just don't even know exist right now because there's so many on the market. And I think the people who are exceptions to the rule inspire more and with in the worst way possible encourage, the, encourage more of the same problem. Like uh, someone you had on last year, the Daniel Aronson, I hope yeah. I said his last mm-hmm. name right, the Island of El Dorado designer. Yep. Love the guy I met with Gen Con, wonderful guy. When I saw the timeline for this is when we came up with the idea and this is when we launched our Kickstarter, it blew my mind <laughs> how quick it was. Mm-hmm. And that was an amazingly successful game. So successfully did it twice. Yep. And that was just incredible. Um, but I can speak as someone who looked at that as a first time designer and thought, oh, the stars are the limit. I can do, <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> but I'm sure, like, I'm sure, like, so someone like me. What was nice was I had this inspiration of a guy who was making his first game and was so wildly successful. That inspired me to go further with mine. But at the same time, my natural intense paranoia kicked in and I was like, right, time to crunch some numbers and talk about some things and have everything budgeted and everything balanced and all the people consulted. Yeah. Um, But I think there's lots of people who see a game like that that just explodes and think, oh, well, if he can do a game in six months that goes from idea to hundreds of thousands of dollars maybe i can as well no he he had he has his graphic design company and all these resources and then the dedication to make it happen you need to have all of the parts and even then there's some that don't make it there's some games that have had hours and hours and hours and years poured into them like i feel guilty sometimes when i go when i talk to other game designers like at the first exposure playtest hall in GenCom, I was sitting next to a guy and I was like, oh, how long have you been working on this game? And he was like, oh, I've been working on this since 1996. <laughs> and I thought, oh, what? Oh, my word. Well, I started this three years ago. Yeah. And then 
I hope he's successful, but if he's not, I think, wow, that's just so scary that some people put all this effort in and then sometimes nothing comes from it. But that's not about randomness. Sorry. That is randomness because it's the randomness of success. The <laughs> random nature. Absolutely. That's another thing that it just is what it is. You have so many companies that are great. They have good business plans, good people running them, good games. And for random reasons, it just doesn't work out, right? Um, Even endorsements aren't the same as they used to be. Like, yeah. it used to be a thing like uh, James Dagmeyer uh, from Stonemeyer Games. Someone I spoke to online who released a game on Kickstarter this year. Uh, Jamie followed them on Twitter, was like, oh, I think this game looks great. The first kit time they launched their Kickstarter, it didn't fund. They, they canceled it and came back later. It was a game called uh, Forsaken Forest. Mm-hmm. Um and it was just amazing to think that something that maybe a few years ago would have been like a golden ticket, like, oh, this big visible person in the industry has given me some attention. I'm going to make it. I'm going to fund. That's not the same kind of level of just ding that it used to be. Yeah, that's a great point. All right, but let's get back to the topic at hand. Let's get into the playtesting of, of things. So when you're playtesting randomness and player agency, what are the things that you're looking for? We talked about earlier, you know, are players just taking the exact same actions the first three turns and so just speeding up, you know, just let's start on turn four. Or like what are what are you looking for when you're watching playtesters or you're playtesting your own game as far as these two things go? So one thing for me was... You need an. Obs- I think when you have the more randomness you have, the more you have to do things. Quantity becomes a huge thing, and there are people who will preach about, "Oh, I made this tool that draws my deck of cards four million times, and then it tells me how many times each card came up." I think there's a value in that. And um, me personally, I've always found the most random thing you can have test game as a player because human beings will do strange things. <laughs> True. So one thing I found. I have this random setup for my game, but to mitigate the randomness, um, I mentioned earlier choosing your home village. There's the ho- I would call my home villages pseudo-random. So they are randomly distributed, but always in the same locations. So where the resources are is always different, but there's always going to be bases in these positions. And so I thought that was randomness enough to keep things fresh. But then I found there was one spot that I'd made that had a 64% win rate whenever it was picked. And so that's something that I noticed by playing it again and again. But you wouldn't see that from a random setup and just crunching the numbers of what base goes where. You have to see the full development to try and get the results. Um, So I think when you're playtesting with randomness, you need to have kind of a long, a wider view of what the consequences of a random thing could be. So I, I could say, oh, setting up this base, this person has these resources here but what i found that every single game people were winning from that location so it wasn't what i had wanted it to be so then it changed in the design and the new location for that base has a 40 40 win rate so it's not it's nothing like that nothing near as high yeah this is something i'm running into right now with my own game and you know put it out there to play testers and i'm really excited to get the feedback of which factions are winning what percentage of the time right because i want to make sure that everyone is winning you know roughly a balanced amount you know there's there's four factions in the game right now so in theory you know 25 percent of the time you know each faction is winning it's probably not going to work out exactly that way but uh i remember the other day i was doing play testing with just a group of friends uh, here at the school and and so i i was using one faction and i won by a a pretty good margin i was like oh shoot Mm -hmm. i wonder if these guys are are not so balanced and so I was like, the next game, okay, let me take this fourth place team from last or faction from last game and let me use them. And I won again mm-hmm. by a 
pretty good a margin. I was like, huh, mm-hmm. okay. I think it's just because I understand the game better than anybody else. Yeah, <laughs> like I know those little yeah. nuanced strategies that other people they haven't played it nearly as often as I have, and so they, you know, obviously they didn't design the game, and so they're not seeing it. And I was like, okay, cool. So maybe these things aren't as imbalanced as I thought. And so sometimes you run into that. Like you have to be careful playing a game yourself as the designer because you know all the stuff and you know all the cards that might come out and all that, and you got to be be aware. Yeah. That makes me sometimes, that was one of the things that made me think my game might be too random for a while. So I play my game a couple of hundred times with people. Uh, I have won my game precisely 12 times. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, okay. Why do you think that is? Um, I think part of it comes to, uh, one thing I did with my playtesting is if I noticed someone winning convincingly with a certain strategy... I would then, when I was playing with myself with playtesters, I wouldn't play the way I wanted to play. I would replicate the play style I saw. Mm. So, so one person in the early days crushed their game by building up their tribe, recruiting some extra people, and then just going on an all-out warring effort, wiping everyone else out of the game. So I thought, okay, I'm going to try this myself for a number of games and see if I can replicate it. And of all the times I played it trying to do that, it only succeeded once, hmm. which for me was a relief because I thought, okay. Yeah. And then that'll happen with other things. Like one person just hoarded resources. They weren't really, I think it's me personally, I think that's a boring way to play my game. But again, I went and I tried to replicate it. Like, okay, you won your game by hoarding resources and everyone else starved to death. Good for you. Right. Let me try and do the same thing <laughs> again. Um, and it didn't work. So I think part of the reason my, my win rate in my own game is so low is because... <laughs> Again, I haven't been trying to play optimally all the time. But also, I think I'm quite pleased that there's this level of randomness that I can't solve it. I can't. Oh, I think if I always won, that would be a problem. Yeah, for sure. And that's a good sign that you're not winning, right? It's, it's important as designers to try during playtesting to break your game, right? And to see yeah. if these weird strategies that maybe no one would ever use except for Steve. And you know who you are, Steve, and you always do the weird <laughs> random strategies and it's not fun. You just want to win, but you got You have to account for Steve. And so it's yeah. important during playtesting to try these things that, you know, let's just see if they work, right? And it's good that it didn't work out so well for you. Cause it's, yeah, like you and said, I had, totally- I've had games where... My game does feature quite a bit of dice rolling. Any game with dice combat does. And I had a game where I lost everything. And so, like, speaking about coming back, and they'll go dive into this example. So my game uses dice combat, which is inherently random. But when you go into combat in my game, this is the input randomness, but I want you to have as much control going in as possible. So, for example, uh, in my game, uh, when two tribe members, so two workers from a different team are on the same tile they're going to fight for that tile and both players roll two dice add the score up together difference between them determines what happens to the loser if you put another worker into that combat you get to re-roll one of your dice for each person you add you get another re-roll so you're getting this kind of decreasing of the random chance because you have chances to go for it again other things you can go and get like gear or equipment that'll give you a fixed bonus to your score as well as what you just rolled And then, like I mentioned earlier, if you've got some dead people, a piece of gear, you could be going into a fight with plus four to your roll and two re-rolls to use. So you've played the game strategically. You've set yourself up with this advantage. However many times out of ten, you're going to win that combat. But what I love and what happened to me was I went in with all my gear, all my people, all my re-rolls, and I rolled a double one three times. And the table exploded. 
So it's, I think like that's the kind of thing when I'm talking about balancing like randomness and player agency is that most people who do this all the time, and I saw other people doing this exact thing and rolling well and winning their game. But for me, I still enjoyed that. I st- I'll still talk about rolling that terrible roll three times in a row and losing all the games. But For sure. And this is something that's funny. I, th- I think it was Sid Meier who was talking about the, the video game civilization and mm. how in the playtesting of that way back when, how there would be certain scenarios where a, a unit would have a 90% chance of winning and would lose because there's still that 10%. But the player would get so angry. And it's like, well, you realize how stats work, right? You like you realize how odds yeah. work. It was not a hundred percent; it was ninety. Like there was a one in ten chance that you were going to lose. And he, and he talked about how interesting it was for players to go into battles thinking, "Okay, I've got a ninety percent chance." That's basically, uh, you know, it might it's might, it might as well be a hundred. Like no. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to have these these moments where you do roll three double ones in a row, right? Because that is possible, and it creates these cool moments. I think the problem is as well is people forget that stat rolls of the dice. People forget there's no memory. It's not pseudo-random, oh, right. it's random. Yep. Like, it's that kind of trick question of you say, oh, if I flip a coin a thousand times and 999 times it's heads, what's the chance that the thousandth time will be heads? And people say, like, oh, like, one in a billion or mm-hmm. one in a trillion. Yeah. The answer is it's 50-50. Right. Because there's no memory to... There's, the coin has no memory. So same with dice rolls in my game. You've gone in with three re-rolls. There's no memory. You can roll this, these bad rolls all the time. Yeah, that's you great. Find that, Good. You mentioned oh sorry, you mentioned civilization. XCOM is another one that is that's part of the culture of that game now. Yeah. That you'll have like people will post screenshots of either someone missing like a ninety eight percent shot or <laughs> they'll have like a screenshot of their trooper with their gun in a in an alien's face and it says chance to hit ten percent. <laughs> but people accept the randomness as part of it. And I don't think anyone's ever I mean I'm sure they have. I'm sure people have quit the game because they've missed one shot that they thought they had a ninety percent on. But I think most people when randomness is like well presented and inte- an integral part of the fun, I think people accept it really well. Yeah, it's a good point. And this is something I got from Matt Colville, who talks a lot about D and D. He's got a really mm-hmm. awesome YouTube channel that the dice are not storytellers. Like the dice are not trying to roll a certain way to tell an epic story hmm. or, you know, to play the, the game out in a certain way. They're just dice and they're just random. And so if you're really trying to make a game that has cool story elements, you have to account for that. Now, a cool thing about D&D is if you're a dungeon master, you can fudge some things. You can be like, oh, that was a one. We're going to pretend like it was a 10. You know, and yeah, you can ignore things as right, well. You're rolling behind you the screen. Yep, exactly. But if you're just a normal board game like we're talking about, you don't necessarily have that opportunity to fudge some dice rolls. And so you have to hmm. account for yeah, the dice might come up a one ten times in a row, and that is that's possible. And so, is that okay yeah. with you? Like, or, or is that the game you're you're making where if that happens, you know, it, it's okay? And so, I think it's another thing, just kind of think about going in as far as how much randomness versus how much player agency you want. I think that's when you came. I think that kind of comes back to what you mentioned earlier about aiming your game at a group of people. Yeah. So I I am um, I did aim my game wide. I wanted my game to be playable by people who aren't super into. like heavier modern board games and i wanted it to be satisfying for the people who are but one thing i wanted to make clear is i want the game to come across as something that you're playing and it's meant to be fun so i think you have to have almost like faith in your audience to know what they're going into so like you play a game that if you play a game that looks and reads and plays like a game that's meant to be strategic and then it completely screws you with randomness out of nowhere I think you're well within your rights to be offended by the game and to criticize the game for that. But I think a game that wears this kind of stuff on its sleeve, 
the game and the designer are kind of having faith in you to know what you're getting into, to know you're going, oh, I'm going into this game with dice combat. I better expect 100% player agency. You're going to have a bad time. If you go into this game thinking, I'm going into this game with dice combat, I'm going to do my best, but at the end of the day, something could go wrong. Yeah, for sure. I think think another thing, and you've mentioned a little bit already, is finding ways to mitigate the randomness and and give players more agency in their actions, their strategies, their objectives, in ways to change dice rolls, have re-rolls, add to dice, you know, do different things, draw two cards and pick one, like to be able Mm. to mitigate things that make players feel clever, you know, to help them feel uh, not to help them not feel like the game has screwed them over. And even if they have to go out of their way, right? We have to pay an extra resource to get this extra mitigation, yeah. you know, trying to set yourself up for success. Like in, in my, my space game, it's, it's a flicking game. It's a dexterity game. And so there mm-hmm. are uh, upgrades you can get to give yourself extra flicks. And so if, you, if you're not yeah. great at flicking, you know, if you're not the most dexterous person, well, you, can, <laughs> you can spend resources to give yourself some, some tech upgrades and, and get yourself more flicks. Whereas somebody who's, you know, wants to uh, risk it a little bit more and go, no, I'm, I, can, I can do it in, in one or two. Okay, they don't have to take that strategy, but they're, you know, they're, they're risking it. And so I feel like giving mm-hmm. players those options is also a really good way to kind of help them feel like they have more agency in the game. And also, I think when players are reacting in turn to randomness, um, agency in that sense can be different. So for example, I mentioned in my game, you choose where you want your village to be, and that determines what your starting resources are going to be. So you might think, oh, well, the first player is going to have a great time because they get their pick of the bases. They know exactly what they're getting. They're getting the resources they want, the location they want. Sucks to be last. So one thing I want to make sure, because rant the, I have a gimmick for choosing the first player in my game. Everyone does these days. Uh, me, personally, the gimmick is whoever's gone the longest without eating is the first player. But I know that a lot of the time people will choose first player with an app like Schwazi, with rolling dice. So I want to make sure that even if you're choosing your first player randomly, um, first and last both have their upsides. So, for example, when you're choosing where you want your home base to be, it's all been randomly set up. You've been randomly designated last player. Yeah, you might have to watch other people choose all the prime spots, the best resources. But in my game, all of the bases that aren't chosen are where the objectives start. So if you're the last player choosing where you want your village to be, yeah, you didn't get the best resource distribution, but you know exactly where the re- where the objectives are going to be, and you actually get that last choice. Because if you're choosing, let's say, in a four-player game, so there's eight spots to choose from as a home base, if you're the fourth player choosing, you have the choice of five. And you know that the four spots you don't choose are where the objectives are going to be. So you kind of have that choice to say, okay, I was randomly selected as the last player, but I choose where the objectives are going to start. Gotcha. Well, cool, man. Hey, do you have any closing thoughts, any kind of final advice for somebody that's maybe thinking about, you know, maybe they're working on a game with randomness and trying to figure out well, what's the balance, what's the mitigation, that kind of thing? I think step one should be choose, not necessarily your audience, but choose what the goal of the game is. Is the goal of the game to be strategic or to be random, silly, and fun? And then balance appropriately. So if you have it as a sliding scale, random, silly, fun, casual game, be as random as you like. Uh, but as you go towards this strategic game, have as much randomness as you want. My game has a ton of randomness, but if you want more randomness, you need to add more choice. There always has to be a way to respond to it or react to it. If you make people feel powerless, that's not why people play games. I mean, maybe the sadists who like games like Dark Souls, maybe they do, but most games people want to have choices and feel like they can do something. And that's what you have to always bear in mind. If the randomness takes away all your choice, then you've ruined your own game. Yeah, for sure. Well, cool, man. Well, hey, tell me about your Kickstarter real quick. Give me like the uh, two-minute elevator pitch. 
Two-minute elevator pitch. Okay, uh, do you want to lead your tribe in a race against time to survive against the, the angry gods? Well, then, Motora is the game for you. It's uh, launching on Kickstarter on October 17th. Uh, hopefully that's nice. If you're far in the future, then tough luck. Uh, resource management, keep your tribe alive. Make sure everyone's fed, watered, and sheltered. Uh, worker placement, go out and get those resources. Dice combat, do you want to fight your friends? Perfect, fight them. You want to defend your resources? You're going to have to do that as well. Capture the flag, get those idols to your home village. If you do it quickly, you can win the game like that. The record for winning the game is 12 minutes. Oh, wow. And because one person rushed all the objectives while no one else was looking, they were all first-time players. Um, my personal favorite, uh, somebody won a game at Gen Con by carefully waiting until the island had been just destroyed enough and then causing four other players to starve to death at the same time. So, yeah, if that sounds like the kind of game you would have fun with, then check out Motora on Kickstarter. Awesome. And how do you spell that? Um, M-O-T-O-R-A. Very cool. And then remind me of those dates? It's uh, October 17th. Cool. Very cool. Now, I, one thing I'd like to mention yeah. just about that. Please, if you Google Motora, be careful. Uh, so the game's theme in terms of art and stuff is a mixture of Mayan and Polynesian. And so I, too, I looked at the way like words are structured in both those languages to come up with my game name. <gasps> right after I built my website, everything was locked in. I then found out Motora is also the Italian word for motorbike. So every time I use the hashtag Motora, I sometimes get confused Italian motorcycle fans saying, why is this here? Right. Well, at least it wasn't like Italian for some cuss word or something inappropriate or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> Could have been worse. <laughs> well, cool, man. Well, hey, I really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with your game. Good luck with the Kickstarter. And good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure to be on. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?